Hey everybody, and welcome to Views on View. I'm Ben Hong, Senior Front-End Engineer on the Meltano team at GitLab. And today on our panel, we have Ari Clark, UI UX Engineer at Liquid. Hello. And we also have Eric Hanchett, Software Developer and Author of Vue.js in Action. Hello, hello. And today our guest is Philippa Lacerda. Philippa, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Philippa, and I'm a Senior Front-End Engineer at GitLab too. Awesome. This episode is sponsored by Tidelift, the enterprise-ready open-source software managed-for-you solution. Tidelift provides commercial support and maintenance for the open-source dependencies you use to build your applications, backed by the project maintainers. Save time, reduce risk, and improve code health. The Tidelift subscription is managed open-source for application development teams. It covers millions of open-source projects across JavaScript, Python, Java, PHP, Ruby, .NET, and more. Your subscription includes security updates, from Tidelift Security Response Team that coordinates patches for new breaking security vulnerabilities and alerts immediately through a private channel so your software supply chain is always secure. Tidelift also verifies license information to enable easy policy enforcement and adds intellectual property indemnification to cover creators and users in case something goes wrong. You always have a 100% up-to-date bill of materials for your dependencies to share with your legal team, customers, and partners. Tidelift ensures the software you rely on keeps working as long as you need it to work. Your managed dependencies are actively maintained and we recruit additional maintainers when required. Tidelift helps you choose the best open source packages from the start and then guides you through the updates to stay on the best releases as new issues arise. Take a seat at the table with the creators behind the software you use. Tidelift's participating maintainers earn more income as their software is used by more subscribers, so they're interested in knowing what you need. Tidelift supports GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, and more. They support every cloud platform and other development targets too. The bottom line is you get all the capabilities you expect and require from commercial software, but now from the key open source software you depend on. Check them out at devchat.tv slash Tidelift. So Philippa, today we're here to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Why don't you kick us off? So I think, well, at least you are all familiar with the fact that GitLab has been using GitLab um, View for a while. When we started, there was no documentation, there was no stylings. Vuex, I don't think it was stable enough for us to consider it. And with a fast-paced growing team and considering the fact that we never stopped shipping new features in order to rewrite old codes, there were a lot of good parts, but there were also a lot of ugly parts. Why don't we start off with some of the good ones? What were some of the good things that you you all encountered? Well, I think it's the fact that... Uh, the power that we can deliver to the user. Because I remember when I joined, every time I opened the merge request and I had to wait for the pipeline, I had to refresh the page every single time I wanted to check the status. So when we refactored that code into view, the quality that we could give to the user, it, it increased so much. So I think that is like the, the biggest thing for us. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine what that's like now. Already, it was I'm awful. like, has <laughs> it failed yet? Has it failed yet? Has it failed Because <laughs> that's right, it never passes. The build will always fail. <laughs> and so, what were some of the challenges? Because um, you mentioned that a lot of the standards had not been established yet, you know, such as like Vuex and those things. So the the first challenge we had was I, I remember when I joined, my first task was a big a big refactor. It was the environment page. And we, we had like two features in view and it was very hard to understand like which guidelines should I be using because we had two full features, but each 
were made in different ways with different patterns. So I, when I joined, I was using React. Uh, so the concept of Flux and reusable components was there. One of the applications we had was also following that pattern. So by the end of refactoring that, that code into Vue, I remember I discussed with, with Jacob and Phil and said, we need to document something because it's very hard for everyone to understand exactly what should we be doing. And I remember that after that, code reviews were very hard, especially because in every new view file, the pattern would be different. So even like the order, the order of the, the methods on, in a view component, just that would make the review so much harder. So yeah, I think that was like the first big challenge. Did you use any like linting rules to help with some of that? There weren't any. There were no. There was no linter at the time. Oh, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> I know you can set it up to like. There's different levels of linting. Like there's like super strict mode, the the view recommended linting, and then, but yeah, that's that's a rabbit hole. I guess you can get down. Well, didn't GitLab have some influence over what ended up being the view recommended linting rules? Yes, and it was so good, and I'm still. <laughs> I'm very proud of that moment and it was so good I don't have to change anything so there was a time that I got tired of reviewing different view components with different styles so I went to React Link plugin took some of the some of the rules from there and documented into GitLab and then I asked Phil and Jacob and Fadi can you please review this can we make this our style guides and everyone agreed. So when Chris started working on the style guide and the, he sent a message saying, we are using yours, we were like, yes, we don't have to update our code. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Philippa, for doing all that. I know a lot of teams, including myself, have used those linting rules to just better enforce code standards. And so you have saved us a lot of headache, <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Yes, thank you. Yeah, us too. What else in your talk? I, I saw there was some stuff between VF and VShow. When we do big refactors, we don't usually stop and say, okay, like we have this huge refactor to do and we need to do this right away. Uh, we can't stop shipping new features and we need this refactoring to happen in order to add more stuff. And I, I think that the VShow situation was with the merge requests with the merge requests um, refactor. So everything used to be enamel, used to be processed by Rails, no, no, no endpoints, no reactivity, no anything. And when you have big merge requests, like you can have merge requests with a lot of diffs. And the difference between VIF and VShow can be Performance-wise, I remember in that refactor, I was very surprised that we've killed the browser. Like I, I didn't thought that would be possible with Vue using it to like Vue or React. I, I didn't ever thought, yeah, we can kill the browser, but we, we did. My gosh, <laughs> nothing open. Yeah, it was awful. So you had too many like VFs happening, or like no, what? it was just a single one. It was the difference between the parallel view and the. Um, and the inline view, and just that. Now, you were using VShow initially, is that correct? I think so. Because the, the, technically... That's the one that both are still in the DOM? Yeah, because yeah. you can toggle it often. And 
the thing is, I don't think in a code review you actually toggle it often, but the concept is if you give the user the power to toggle the situation, then you should go with Vishow. In this specific case, going with Vishow was not an option. So the difference would be, so if I'm using Vshow on load, both options would be in the DOM, ready to go, just hidden. Is that correct? Yes. And the problem and then, was that we had a lot of nested components and a lot of properties being passed down. So I'm not, I don't remember if we started using Vuex right away on that. I think so. But we were passing props down like a lot, even in components that didn't need it. So it meant that for each single line, there were a lot of getters and setters being being processed every time. And with the two views, so basically everything was duplicated. And then by switching to the if, only one of those views would be rendered at a time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Nice. So when you say you were passing down a lot of props that you didn't, that weren't necessarily being used. Does that mean, so like you had your parent and then like it's great grandchild needs some information that it has, but maybe it's child and grandchild don't. Is that the scenario? Cause you guys weren't using Vuex yet. That- yeah, there was, there was a lot of information being provided down. Yeah. <laughs> I've been there. Yeah, there was so, so much code. <laughs> you didn't well, have like an old school you, event bus, did you? We used to uh, in the first day. Yeah, we used to. Well, there's there's still some code that still uses it. I don't think we'll ever refactor it, or at least not <laughs> not in the nearest future. But yes, in the beginning, we had that trouble exactly because we didn't want to provide everything down every single time. So we we got <laughs> we got a shortcut. I know some people too, they just put everything on the on the root object for view sometimes if they want to pass stuff. And I don't think that's good practice either. I would agree no. that that's not. <laughs> <laughs> I know some people just want to pass stuff and they're like, they do it. I mean, I guess if your application is extremely small, that you're probably not going to have a huge sacrifice in performance there. But at any scale, <laughs> I feel like that just gets messy too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does, it does not scale at all, especially if yeah. you like to reuse the code elsewhere. I remember we have we have that pattern in pipelines. Uh, so the pipelines table, I think it still uses that. And we use that table in the pipelines page, in the merge request page, when you are when you already have a merge request, in the pipelines page when you are creating the merge request. And in the commits page, I think that is also rendered. And sometimes there are some actions that you can do every, everywhere. So every time we need to add a new feature to that table, we need to be very careful because that's still done in the, the old way. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I thought I was being clever, I was like, I'm going to use an event bus instead of using Vuex and I'll save my users <laughs> kilobytes. And I was like, oh gosh, this is such a mistake <laughs> like six months later. <laughs> well, in our defense, there wasn't Vuex at the time. So. Yeah, no, I was just being yeah. dumb. This is like my early view days. <laughs> I was like, I'm so clever. <laughs> I know yeah. you also mentioned V once. Was that, you, you decided not to use V once? Uh, yeah, so there were, exactly because there were some components that were receiving a lot of properties but wouldn't actually be, be changed, the fact that we added V once 
to some some components of the liquid performance. But we're, we're talking about a huge application with a lot of data. So the data that comes from the the backend, not 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 to blame it on the backend, but the way we were consuming that data and the way that we were providing it down performance-wise, uh, this refactor, although nowadays we realize it did had to happen, it was very stressful. But I think this is how we learn. It's normal. Yeah, so v once is, I don't think many people use it, but it's, it's sort of like a one-way data binding, but it never updates after the first time, I believe. Yeah. So it just sets it and it, it's done, which is kind of interesting. Yeah I, yeah, I don't think people use that too much, too often anymore. I'm not sure... I've ever reached for it. I think maybe I thought I needed it once. And I was like, no, don't want that. <laughs> yeah, yeah there are like a few corner cases. I I don't think I've used it recently either, but I remember using it. And the same way like we have our internationalization library is a bit, it's not a view library. Uh, so it works for both view code and non-view code. And the way we set translations we attach them to the options objects exactly to prevent getters and setters to be added with, with no need for them. We used to have like the translation strings being computed properties without actually needing the state to update for us to get the, so they were, they were static and we moved those to the options object to make, to make it a bit more performant too. So, when you guys finally did introduce Vuex, what was that refactor like? What what was your guys' approach to tackling something that I would imagine touched a lot of areas? So we 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 the code that we already had in Vue that wasn't using Vuex still does not use Vuex. Ah, so all only the new features. But we had the same problem we had with Vue at first because. There is like no definition or there wasn't like a clear definition of exactly what you should do or like one single way of doing Vuex. And there was a time where we had mutations being called directly from the components. And I remember there was like some discussion around that. Should we do this? Should we not do this? And we did exactly the same thing. We went back to Redux documentation <laughs> and create, create, created a pattern for GitLab, which is not a very common architecture in Vuex codes. The way we have the things structured, they kind of have a kind of action creators. Uh, so we have actions that dispatch another action and not not everyone on the front end team is on board with this pattern. Not everyone likes it. It is the cause of a lot of discussions. But I think by now we have understood that although it's not perfect, although it's not documented from Vuex, it was the only thing that made us have all the Vuex code exactly the same and made us understand exactly why the mutations are happening. Because I remember in this refactor from the merge request, there were a lot of regressions and there were a lot of, a lot of developers fixing them at the same time. And the struggle, struggle we had was, why is this mutation being called? Why is the loading state being toggled if apparently I'm not making a new API call? So what, what is happening? Where are things coming from? And, and that was when we decided, okay, we need to document something new. 
Where do you document everything? So at GitLab, everything is public. We have an handbook and all our documentation is there. In in the end book, you said? Yeah. Okay. What's end end book? So everything, the way GitLab works, from our vacation policy, our salaries, literally anything in the company. Well, not our salaries exactly, but a calculator <laughs> of our yeah, salaries. Not, not I realized, cool. yeah, I realized that. <laughs> Gotta go look exactly. at what Ben makes. So. <laughs> You can get you can get pretty close with the calculator, but it's not like listed per employee. <laughs> yeah. So everything is public. And if you go to about.gitlab.com slash handbook, you can see everything in there. And if you look for our documentation uh, in there, it will also link you, but you can go directly to docs.gitlab.com. So everything we do is public. Everything is documented. We are remote only. It's the only way we can work. Things have to be documented. Yeah, I got to say, as someone who joined GitLab fairly recently, um, the handbook has been fantastic just to like have something to reference and just something, um, again, I can't encourage people enough to document things in a way that people can easily access and um, reference things. And so, Felipe, you were mentioning that you had the architecture is different from standard Vuex. Can you tell some of our listeners like what's different about it compared to standard like, maybe Vuex practices? Yeah, so we have this pattern that when you have an API call, imagine that we are fetching users. So we would have an action called fetch users. And that action would dispatch another action called request users. And this request users action would commit a mutation called requests users. And only this mutation would toggle the loading state to true. And then the fetch actions would actually do the, well, in our case, we use Axios. So it would do the, the, the Axios request. And then when we receive uh, the response, if it's, if it's a, a successful one, we dispatch another action. It's called request user success. And if it's an error, request users error. And with this pattern, only the fetch actions the fetch action, it's actually known by the component. The other tree should not, the component should not know about them. And when we look at the Vuex history, we can clearly understand why is the state being toggled. So if it's a, it's loading property, we can clearly understand that it was because a request was made. And if it's being set to false, it was because the, re- the request was received. Before that, it was very hard to understand why exactly the state was changing. So this is not very common. And it's, in my, in my opinion, it's also very easy to test because you can isolate the functions, create smaller functions, create better unit tests. I really like GitLab and how open it is. And, and you can really get the best practices. I mean, they help write some of the best practices for Vue. So that's really cool. So every single repository, most repositories are open source. On GitLab? From GitLab? Sorry, I did not understand your question. Did, is many of the repositories open source that you guys use on the view side? Everything, yeah, everything is open source. That's good. That's cool. I'm just looking through the handbook now. Interesting. Yeah, same. Like when she said it was open source, I was like, ooh, I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, really, I, go yeah. ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I can go ahead. I can tell you that on the open source side, 
the other day I was explaining my dad, like, no, no, everything is public. And he was saying, what do you mean everything is public? Like all my work, you can see it. What about other companies? Yeah, other companies do. <laughs> and how do you make money out of it? <laughs> so it's it's quite funny for someone that does not work um, <laughs> in, our, in our reality. We're just so interested in looking at the handbook right now. <laughs> we can talk about the handbook if you like. <laughs> I'm interested in know like what other kind of tips, what other good things and bad things that you, you that you've seen lately that you've been working on on the view side. Well, I think this this bad things that I've mentioned in this talk were like the worst things, and every now and then we do have some some trouble making the, the message being understood by everyone. Uh, but recently, like we realized, so I've been giving these talks explaining why we did it this way. And all of a sudden, I was I was telling you before, so when I joined, we were around 100 people at GitLab. And now three years later, we are around 900. And for the front-end team, this means that only a handful of people were there when these decisions were made. So only like four of us understand why they were made. And then as the front-end team grew, we noticed that like a lot of new developers were not understanding our decisions and saying like, this does not go accordingly to the documentation. Let's just change everything. And we realized, wait, okay, so people inside the company don't know why this happened. So we did this, uh, Phil and I, we did this talk about why these decisions were made and we, we made it internally. It's also public on YouTube. So everyone that joins now can go and see the talk, although it's internal, everyone can see it. And that made also a difference, like for people to understand, yes, it's not perfect, but it's the way it enables us to keep shipping new features, to have stable codes, uh, because it's not just important to keep giving the user more features, but also that they are stable enough. So this pattern is a good balance of both. I think whenever you have like a, a bunch of really smart people like like you and, and many of the other people at GitLab, there's going to be a lot of opinions and a lot of people are going to argue and you kind of, what's the word, bike shed? Like everybody just starts arguing yeah. over the little tiny points. And But I'm glad you have such great ways of sharing information between the whole organization. Everything's so open that people can come to consensus and, and you don't have to waste all time all the day, you know, arguing over these small points. Well, don't, don't be fooled by that because we have like wasted a lot of time discussing it. <laughs> like we are front-end engineers. Do you know any front-end engineer that doesn't spend three or four hours saying, no, no, my way is better than yours. Let's go this way. <laughs> because that has happened. We aren't just regular front-end people. Uh, we are very passionate. And every time you have passionate people, you will have some conflicts. But as long, I think the thing at GitLab is that at the end of the day, we are able to set our ego aside. I'm not sure if it's the remote situation. You can, okay, let me step away from the computer. This is making no sense. Let's not insult everyone, anyone over code because that's not worth it. So I think at the end of the day, when we set our egos aside and we 
look at the technical advantages uh, and we, we get to all be in the same page. I have to say, for me, as someone who was learning Vue on the fly as I was rewriting an application and on a two-person team, neither of us had used Vue before, it was it was very heartening to know that you guys didn't make the right choices every time the first time. Because <laughs> goodness knows, I didn't make the right choice every time the first time. And it just felt really <laughs> uh, validating to know that even amazingly smart people have to iterate too. So thank you for sharing that it didn't all go well. Because all the time you hear about what went well with with, with what people have done. And it, I think it's really valuable to share what didn't go well. Yeah, it's it's something I've learned at HitLab, not only on a professional side, but also on the personal one. Because if people would share their failure more, I think we would be all a lot happier. Yeah, I totally agree with that. <laughs> do you guys have like a style? And you mentioned style guides and the linting, but do you have like a visual style guide for each one of your components that that's out there? So we have something called GitLab UI is where we have our components, so the buttons and everything, the most reusable ones. And then we are migrating the the shared components that we have, like things for empty states and drop downs and everything. So you can see them rendered there. You can see the entire documentation. So yeah, I think GitLab UI would be the place. I know some companies are like in React. I've seen, I've talked to so many React developers that use Storybook, but on the, and it's slowly being adopted by the Vue community, but I don't think it's quite as popular anymore or a, as Storybook. It could be wrong, but I think we are using it to render the components. I'm not, I've never worked on that repository, but on the, the not on the component side, but on the configuration side, I could be wrong, but I think we are using it. Uh, okay. I'll have to look that up. I have not used it much. No, I've been thinking that I should at least check it out because it seems valuable. (laughs) Yeah, anything that enables you to do your work a lot faster. Yeah, it's like your tool set. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Well, since I somehow missed your previous episodes, Philippa, could you tell us a little bit about how you even got into development? Like, what, where were you before GitLab? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, a few weeks ago, I joined um, a JavaScript story. And, oh, well, goodness. Um, well, sorry about that. <laughs> no, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't published yet. So, no, <laughs> no need for apologies. And when I shared there, without, without saying everything again, so you, you, 
people are not uh, yeah we don't place, want to duplicate but, content uh, so <laughs> i went to university thinking i was going into a communications degree and the minute i got there people were like everyone has a computer and i was like what is this <laughs> what am i doing here so i went to university um with a um, technology degree in multimedia and when I started to work, in my role was of a user experience designer. And thankfully, there was no designing coming from me because I literally, it's really bad when I have to design anything. And <laughs> I feel better already. I like you. <laughs> so I had to uh, learn how to code. And first it was jQuery. I was still like... A I think we were like using Java and a thing called Struts too. And the people in there were very patient to teach me everything because my degree is not on computer science. So I learned everything on the go. And as soon as I started to learn it and see like, oh, I can make stuff. This is really cool. I really enjoyed it. And um, I focused on learning JavaScript the core language, and then all the frameworks that I had to work with. Yeah, and earlier you'd mentioned actually that you had experience with React prior to working with Vue heavily. So the company where I was working uh, before GitLab, we were using React. It was also the first time I used React. We were building this very cool application where you would read the data from a JSON endpoint and your application, your routing, your CSS, everything, it was coming from that endpoint. So it was completely configurable. You would go to the database saying, I want five pages and these five pages would have, will have these titles and these widgets and the front end would mount itself. I'm really proud of this product. And <laughs> I kind of make made the front end a bit useless because... <laughs> It mounted itself, so you don't need any any new front-end developer, but it was really cool. <laughs> you know, I've, I've heard of workplaces like that where, yeah, where they try to put as much as they can in like some configuration that downloads every time the app loads. I find that after a while, though, that really slows the time the app loads, though. So there's probably some Yeah, it would there. not be the first time the app loads. So, oh. And also, like when you have one product that must be configurable for... 200 clients, you either have mm. a lot of manpower or you have to go this way. It was just not doable sending us to a new client every time we had one. Uh, like we were just five people. Interesting. I was, I was talking to, I was emailing Ben and Ari before this, before this episode about, you know, some of the differences between React and Vue. Um, as someone that's gone from React, it seems like a pretty complicated product since you had to do all this JSON loading and, and, and probably had been performant. And going to view, like, how was that transition? Like, what are the some things that you like about view that you wish React had, or or the opposite? Well, I remember at first when I when I started working with Vue, I remember I was I was commenting this with Phil like a couple of weeks ago. Why would anyone choose Vue when you have React? <laughs> this makes no <laughs> sense. I don't know because I was I was coming from a very very strict way of doing stuff like with react there is this one way and everything was very document very well documented so you you just had to follow that pattern also at the company where i was previously everything was very well documented code reviews were very strict 
So we had this very strict pattern and we knew it was predictable. Every new component would work that way. No new things coming in. And the fact that, well, we, we had this struggle with Vue and Vuex at first because there wasn't, there weren't linters, there weren't a lot of stuff at the beginning. For me, it was a big struggle. But um, I can tell you that recently I had to, like, I looked at React hooks and I was like, wait, what is everyone talking about? Because most of my friends work with React and uh, you don't want to be the one that's sitting there in the corner uh, not knowing what to say. So I did this small application with React and I do realize like the learning curve from one to the other, like view is a lot easier to learn and React requires a bit more, a bit more time and a bit more concentration. Yeah, I definitely see that too. I agree. You know, some of the things going from JSX to just, you know, we just have in view, we have our template and we have our HTML and we have these directives that just make things all easy. And then, yeah, to learn like, okay, should I, like, I need a computed property. Okay, cool. I got a computed property in view. I can just throw it in there. Oh, in React, I could maybe use memo. I have to memoize it or I just use a function. Like, definitely a different way of thinking because you just don't have those, the same options in both. It could take a little bit more time to learn on on the React side. Yeah, yeah. I think it also, I mean, it went from it has changed a bit because I mean, I think a while back it was classes. It was like this is how we make a React app: use classes, and then it switched over to hooks in the last year or two, and that's been a big shift for people. That was one of the things that I was struggling with. Like, is this React component it's just a function? This used to be a class. What happened? <laughs> I was just out three years. What happened? Yeah, but it's front-end words. And you can write view apps with classes, too. I know you can set that up, but it's not mm-hmm. really as popular. It's, I don't think. it's a plugin, I believe, if you want to use a class syntax. Yeah, that's the nice thing about Vue. I mean, we can do JSX, we can do classes, we just need to get the right plugins to do everything. I think we still have some... The issue boards, I think it's still classes. And the templates are enamel at GitLab for the issue boards, yeah. So fun to rewrite that stuff. <laughs> Do you guys use TypeScript? Uh, no, we don't. Okay. Has there been, I bet there's some TypeScript fans. There in was Agila. some discussion, yes. But I think we've realized that, especially because at the time the team was still growing and uh, we realized that given the structure of our applications, that not everything is in view, starting to use it would not be very beneficial for us. I don't know. I've, I'm pretty much on the TypeScript bandwagon. I'm creating a new project using Nuxt. I'm like, okay, can I get TypeScript in here? How am I going to set this all up with the linters? And so far, it's been good, but I can understand. Well, I can tell the... you there's still a few files in GitLab where you have, like, the first line, it's a huge block of S-Link disabled rules. Very, very old code. So it wouldn't <laughs> be very profitable for us, like, oh, yeah, adding not. more tools on top of this. Yeah. Have you guys discussed, like, what what you want to do with Vue 3, like how that should be a pretty easy transition. Are you guys talking about that at all? We usually keep uh, our dependencies updated. Sometimes the merge requests take a bit longer because there are some breaking changes. But so far until today, there hasn't been an issue. Okay, that's good. I guess when you have um, so many new enthusiasts in your company, you can't really have an excuse not to update stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah, the real question is whether or not everything's going to be rewritten in the composition API. 
I really hope that that's not going to be the trend with you three. I when yeah, that's gonna like be. all the hubbub about React hooks. I'm just like, I mean, just because you have a new tool doesn't mean you have to, you know, retroactively use it for all the things. Yeah, that's, that's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, you, yeah, that's yeah. obviously your guys' approach. Is okay when you get the yeah. new tool, use it moving forward. But <laughs> exactly, like things are working. Makes no sense for us to go waste two or three developers rewriting it for the sake of rewriting it. If it would improve the customer experience, like highly improve it, but I, I don't think that's the case. So it doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you know, for, I think this will be published in a few weeks. So, you know, as people start obviously looking into the composition API, you know, it is important to remember that it really is a, just an additive technique. The way you would use slots, scope slots, you know, provide inject. These are patterns for you to enhance your app, not for you to rewrite your entire thing using this one thing. Yeah. Now, I think that's the difference between, and I don't speak on behalf of the React community, but I know a little bit about them. I think the idea in the React community is when Hooks came out, it was almost like a game changer. Like, even though it wouldn't change the experience that the customer saw, it was such an easier way of doing things that most companies, and I, I think most, a lot, are rewriting their apps from the class base to, to hooks. While on the other hand, Vue 3, it's it's a nice additive feature, but it the gains aren't probably worthwhile to rewrite your whole app in. I've always been curious. I've never worked for a company that would have enough people working there to be able to say, Let's just stop everything and rewrite this with this new feature. I don't know. I'm I'm always curious, like what what motivates a team to do this? I get the the feeling that you have like this code is really good and it's really beautiful and it follows the same pattern. But I don't know. Maybe it's something you get with the experience. You just accept that there isn't a perfect code base, not a single one. And so for me, it's always very. I don't know. I'm always very curious to, to know why why would the company stop everything if if it doesn't affect the customer, if the customer doesn't get like a better experience, why would you do that? And we have debates at our work all the time. I work at like an insurance type company that has a front end product, and we debate like we you know it's basically technical debt. It's like what you know, where do we put the stakeholders priority versus the developers priority? Because I think a lot of us look at the code we've written in the past and say, oh, we can refactor this. There's a cool new thing that came out. We can do this better. But when it comes down to the business needs, like how do we balance that? How do we balance time we spend on technical debt versus time we can spend on cool new features for our customers? So I definitely know that usually the business wins. And if we have time, maybe we can kind of go back and do some refactoring. So you're right. It's it's a hard balance and yeah. it doesn't always happen. I, I get it from a developer perspective. Like I look at my own code from three years ago and I think, oh my God, what was I, what was I thinking? <laughs> I need to go and refactor this. And then I think, yeah, I'm not going to be able to convince anyone to do this. And it makes sense because it's working and it's stable. And yes, it's painful for me every time I have to go there and that's something new. But at the end of the day, I'm focusing on the, the customer and maybe it's easier for me to understand the customer side because I'm also the customer. I'm not sure. So I was given the opportunity to do a complete rewrite of the app I work on. Some of the reasons why 
it made sense was the fact that <laughs> we had kind of designed ourselves into a corner. <laughs> so we were going to have to do like a complete visual redesign anyway. We were using a technology that was honestly creating bugs for us. So despite the fact that the baseline rewrite wasn't really going to have any additive features, it opened the door for us to more quickly add features going forward. And also the backend team was um, doing a port over to a new, I think they were going from BSD to Ubuntu or something like that. So there was a lull in new features. So, <laughs> uh, so we did that. And actually right now I'm working on a refactor because again, some, <laughs> it was one of the first features we did in the view rewrite. So some choices were made that were maybe not great. And by not great, I mean, it was becoming extremely unmaintainable. (laughs) And it's also an area where there's a lot, there was always intended to be some um, extensibility and addition of more small features within that view. And it, like, I was getting asked to add in things quickly that I had to just say, I can't do it in that time frame because the code was not well structured and I would have to rip it all apart to do that. So finally I was just like, can I have time to rip this all apart so that moving forward, when you ask me to make a change here, it will be easy. And they're like, yeah, do it. So, I mean, sometimes I think there's a, a, there's an argument for it, but yeah, for the most part, if it's working, okay, let it be. (laughs) Yeah. We we am recently doing something like that. So yeah, we have the the job log in the pipelines. You can inspect the, the log of the of each job. And until nowadays at GitLab, that is a blob of HTML coming from the server. So I remember, like when I first joined, I was like, "Why are we doing this? This doesn't make sense." And I kept fighting it. And only like two months ago. I was able to start refactoring because we need to add more features into it in order to add them in a reasonable amount of time with some quality. We realized, okay, no, we need to actually do this right. Uh, there's no way we can like having HTML coming from the server and then doing like the old jQuery way. It's not doable. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like really the only reasonable use case for doing like a large refactor is because the choices you made the first time were poor enough (laughs) that the consequences have become unavoidable. (laughs) We all do it. Like as you're learning, you don't always make the right choice. Yeah. 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 I guess for me, I'm always just glad to be able to recognize growth in my own code to be like, Oh man. Yeah. I definitely would use this pattern now because it would be more efficient. And as much as I think we want to sometimes be embarrassed by our old code, I think we should embrace it more and be like, hey, it means I'm growing. Yes, it's mean, it means that we've learned a lot. Yeah. Uh, the, the other way around would be we should be worried if it was dead. Oh, God, yeah. Well. I mean, <laughs> depending on, you know, the type of dam I'm having, <laughs> there may sometimes be some regression, but... One of the things I did want to piggyback on earlier that you mentioned, Philippa, is even though I do work on Meltano, which is um, separate from the core product at GitLab, one of the things I love about like you know the GitLab front-end team is that you're actually building the product you're using every day. And I think that's super helpful from like a, wait, why did we do this? Like you can't blame anyone else for why like something's happening. You're like, 
I yeah. Sometimes she, it's very stressful. Why? Yeah, it can be. <laughs> One of I, these weekends, I was using GitLab, and I was like, "Why? Why did we made it like this?" <laughs> And now yeah. then you realize, oh, I have to be the one, like, when you're using a product and you find a bug and you think, yeah, someone, like, got it this wrong. And then, like, <laughs> when you're using your product, it's like, crap, now I have to go and fix it. So it's like it's all my mistake. fault. And then you get blaming it and you're like, no, that really was me. Okay. <laughs> who was the developer oh. who did this? Oh, damn it. <laughs> Only three days ago. Why? Why? <laughs> and it's also very frustrating, like when you have your friends using GitLab. So you you make a bug, you ship it to production, and then all of a sudden you're receiving WhatsApp messages saying, "Why is this broken? Who broke it? Was it you?" <laughs> right. <laughs> When you were talking about like friends being like, oh, why is it broken? Like you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, sometimes oh. I feel like like texting them. I'm not customer support. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not your personal IT helper. <laughs> Just stop. Like go open an issue. <laughs> if you want, you can ping me in the issue, but go open an issue. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, like that's one of those products where dog fooding really actually makes sense because you are the target audience. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah like usually they're like oh dog fooding don't do that too much like put it in the hands of real users but internally you guys are also the real users <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> that we are we are the first ones to notice when something is broken <laughs> it's like wait where where'd the automatic refreshing go <laughs> like why why am i refreshing why now? is this missing <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm in a weird position because the product i build well <sighs> is often used as a development tool for other layers of the app. And so while they're not necessarily like the target audience, they're, they are using it a lot. And for some reason, I get blamed for all the bugs that are theirs. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have ever had that. <laughs> Just because like the visual layer is where like, you know, bugs manifest. But I'm like, but you understand that just because you see it in the UI doesn't mean it started there. <laughs> that is very common everywhere, yeah. Yeah. This is not working. It's probably front end. Just no, the front end. The only front end developer, so I literally have to field all of them. Oh no. Yeah. I'm really good at debugging though. I, that is one good thing that's come out of that. I don't really know exactly where to look, uh, depending on the type of problem. I'm like, oh yeah, I've seen something like this before. Check this file. Ta-da, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> nice at least generally they are mine and i really like to rub that in no i'm just kidding i'm sometimes gracious about it <laughs> depends on the time of day it really does <laughs> if it's like 3 p.m and i'm like hitting that wall maybe not as much <laughs> so Philippa, where can people find you on the internet i have a website hosted on gitlab pages it's philippa.gitlab.io and all my links are there, all my talks, all the podcasts, all the articles I've written. On Twitter, it's Philippa Lacerda, and on GitLab, it's Philippa. I think GitHub, it's also Philippa Lacerda. There's literally nothing there. So <laughs> if you're looking for my code, you should see the GitLab profile. Great. We'll make sure to include those in the show notes. Ari, do you have any final questions for Philippa before we wrap on and wrap up and move on to picks? No. I've learned a lot, though, so thank you. 
Yeah. One of my favorite communities to get involved with these days is the Angular community. There are so many great people there. We've had a lot of them on Adventures in Angular over the last several years. And I really wanted to just highlight people and give you a chance to get to know the flavor and the feel of being around some of these awesome people. We've talked to people on the Angular core team. We've talked to people who have organized the conferences. We've talked to some of the co-hosts that I've had on Adventures in Angular. Nowadays, Aaron Frost is running the show and he's doing the same thing. Typically, he's been doing it at conferences lately, which is a lot of fun. But you get to hear what these people are about and why they care and how they get involved with other people in the Angular community. So if you're looking for that connection in the Angular community and a way to really understand the people who are involved in the Angular community, then go check out My Angular Story. You can find it at myangularstory.com. All right. So to get started, Eric, would you like to go first? Okay. Yeah. Um, So I've been just doing a lot of stuff in Nuxt lately, just looking at uh, Nuxt and TypeScript, which is probably my picks for this week. There's also TypeScript um, with GraphQL and a type ORM. So I've been just learning all about that, how I can create a, a cool backend using GraphQL and, and TypeScript. And I, those, those are my picks this, this week. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Ari, would you like to go next? Sure. This week I have two picks. <gasps> Amazing. So one of them... I've sort of already picked, but whatever. I don't care. It's amazing. So this weekend, I got to see uh, the band Explosions in the Sky live, and it was incredible. Highly recommend it if you ever have the opportunity. They are currently on their 20th anniversary tour, though by the time this comes out, I don't know how many show dates will be left. Because I'm like super stoked about that experience, I'm going to go ahead and pick their album, The Earth is Not a Cold Dead Place. The best song on that is Your Hand and Mine which was so good live. My next pick is something that I had to use this week. It's a concept called radical acceptance. It's uh, the idea of accepting life on life's terms and just embracing that and going with it. So, you know, when something unexpected and undesirable happens, you simply meet life where it is. You don't try to change what can't be changed. You don't dwell on the, past mistakes that maybe led to that situation. And uh, specifically the situation was, I thought I was giving a talk next Monday (laughs) that I was actually giving a couple days ago. The only reason I figured that out was because a friend of mine sent me a message saying she wasn't going to be able to make it tonight. And I was like, wait, what? Oh no. Oh no. Because I didn't even have slides done. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, And this was like, I don't know, three hours before I was supposed to give the talk. <laughs> but I, you know, I was like, okay, uh, I only have X amount of time. I'll get done what I can get done. If it's, if I don't get it done, you know, it's not the end of the world. I know this information. I just maybe don't have it in the most presentable form right now, but it, it ended up being totally fine. People said that they got a lot of value out of the talk even if it was maybe not the most linear talk ever. Uh, I just, I owned the fact that I wasn't ready and I, it worked out. People liked it. So um, radical acceptance, if you have the capacity to practice it, which it can be, it can be really difficult to, to just accept things on that level. It was, it's something that in the past, honestly, it saved my life. So it's part of dialectical behavioral therapy, which I know Chris has picked uh, the skills manual for that before. So if you want to learn more about it, it is a skill from dialectical behavioral therapy. And those are my two picks. 
Great advice, Ari. Alitha, what picks do you have for us this week? So they're not about something that already happened. I'm going to be advocating for people to visit Portugal. So at the end of the month, I'm joining a conference about remote work. It's called Remote Shift and it will be in Lisbon. So if you're in Portugal or want to visit Portugal, check that out. And the second pick, uh, it's something that I'm really excited about next year. If you're a fan, System of the Down will be performing in Portugal. So if you've never been to Portugal and you'd like to see them live, this is a great opportunity. I wouldn't have pegged you for a System of the Down fan. Most people don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, she looks very unassuming and kind of proper. <laughs> and in pink. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. And then for this week, uh, my song pick of the week is a cover by Dagny called Landslide. I don't know why I'm blanking on the original artist, but it's a great cover by Fleetwood them. Mac. I uh, believe so. Also, Dixie Chicks covered it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, Dixie Chicks is the one that I'm most familiar with. And then my second pick is a short story by Ted Chang again, because I've been reading his like collections. It's called Anxiety is the Dizziness of Freedom. And so it's actually really funny that Ari, you mentioned about radical acceptance, because in this particular science fiction universe, it's basically a short story about a world where people have this device called a prism. And so whenever you activate it, it basically creates an alternate timeline based on this one moment. And you can have discussions with your parallel version what? Like, like, so almost as if like, you know, if you're ever deciding between two different jobs, you would like be like, okay, I'm going to take this one. I'm going to start my prism and my other self is going to take the other like job. And then you talk to your other person and ask them about their day or like whether they're more successful. It's, it's, so it like explores the whole concept of like, if you could find out about what's happening in this alternate timeline, you know, like the kind of impact it has on people's mental well-being, because even things like, uh, couple was in an accident right like in two different timelines the alternate spouses passed away and so like you know talking to your it, it's just like it's a really fascinating exploration of what that world might look like if we that had would be like so that. useful <laughs> would it though like in I everything now i, I want know. that yeah i don't know that i would want that Maybe I would get more anxious because I would know. <laughs> so yeah, see, okay, it would have, yeah, maybe it would be a problem. <laughs> yeah, the whole grass is greener is definitely a big piece of that because you know. Yeah. But anyways, a really fascinating sort of mind experiment, great short story. If you're interested in that concept, and yeah, so with that, those are my picks for the week. Anybody have any final words before we wrap up this episode? All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. And that's it for this episode of Views on View. Thank you for joining us. And until next week, enjoy the view. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.